Hello, and welcome to the AAMFT Podcast, your all-access pass to the latest news developments and thought leaders in the world of systemic therapy. We strive to relate, educate, and innovate one episode at a time. I'm your host, Dr. Eli Karam, and we're brought to you by the American Association for Marriage and Family Therapy. Our podcast explores topics that relationship-based therapists care about. In addition to featuring unique conversations and interviews with established experts, our show provides information and education on direct practice and emerging trends in the MFT profession. For more information, please visit us at aamft.org. Thanks for listening and enjoy the show. Today on the AAMFT podcast, a topic all therapists come into contact with death, dying, grieving, but many of us did not receive formal training on, even though we're systemic as couple and family therapists, and we know grief is both individual and collective, sometimes it's very difficult to sit with a client in grief, especially if we haven't resolved our own grief. And who better to talk to about that today but the world's foremost expert on grief, I'm talking about David Kessler. Now, if you've never heard that name, perhaps you've heard of his work and who he's worked with. Speaking of the legendary Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, and you'll hear all about how they met in their collaboration today. David has worked with thousands of people on the edge of life and death, and it's taught him the secrets to living a fulfilled life, even after more tragedy than one person can handle. And part of what is special about David is his ability to talk with such vulnerability about his own grief. He co-authored On Grief and Grieving and Life Lessons with the aforementioned Elizabeth Kubler-Ross. And You Can Heal Your Heart, Finding Peace After a Breakup, Divorce, or Death with Louise Hay. And today we'll be talking about his most recent book, Finding Meaning, The Sixth Stage of Grief. David's work has been featured in the New York Times, LA Times, Business Week, and Life Magazine. He's been on news outlets like CNN, Fox, NBC, PBS, and CBS. He served on the Red Cross Aviation Disaster Team. He lectures for physicians, nurses, counselors, police, and first responders everywhere. You also can find him on grief.com. And toward the conclusion of the interview, he talks about resources, both for clients, and for therapists. David, welcome to the AAMFT podcast. I have read your book. It's been meaningful to me personally and my clients, and I'm glad we finally have a chance to do this. For those not familiar with your work, we're going to talk about the sixth stage of grief today, but talk to us about how you got into the field and then how you met, I don't think I know this story, how you met Elizabeth Kubler-Ross and got involved with the stages of dying, stages of grief. Well, thank you. I'm so thrilled to be with you and your audience today. I love the work that everyone does, and obviously I'm just a fan, and it's so important that we acknowledge the helpers in the world. So I'm a big believer in that. You know, I often say that this isn't a profession that you choose as much as it chose me. I was 13 years old. I had a mother who was sick growing up. I just thought that everyone's mother was in and out of hospitals, and that's just sort of how life was. And then as I got older, I realized, oh, my mom's sick. Other people's moms aren't sick quite as much. And she got really sick and had to be transferred to a hospital hours away because we lived in a small city. And when she was transferred to this hospital, she was in the intensive care unit. You could only visit five minutes every two hours. And if you were under 14, you weren't allowed in. I didn't know or think, you know, it's interesting. I lived in a world where people said, make sure you lie about your age for beer. No one told me to lie about my age to get into a hospital. The nurses, many of them said rules are rules. Sorry, you can't come in. Others would say, you know, we'll let you in this time. A lot of them were lovely and some, you know, it was in the 70s and back then, the family was thought of as 
outside the healing process and, you know, keep the family out so the healing can happen. So that was the thought of the day, and I was part of that scenario. At the hospital where we were across the street, at the hotel where we were across the street, one day someone started yelling fire, and all of a sudden a fire broke out. Everyone ran out of the hotel. And on the 18th floor, we saw these flames. The fire trucks pulled up. They extended their ladders, and shooting began. And they suddenly realized this isn't just a fire. We've got an active shooter. It went on for 13 hours. It was one of the first mass shootings in the U.S. So in the span of a few days, my mother died alone. I was in this shooting where I saw first responders killed, hotel guests killed, police officers killed. And it turned out it was racially motivated. So the idea of people dying alone, racially motivated shootings... It's interesting, it's not too different from today. So that really set me on my course to find healing. You know, there there wasn't anyone there to really help me. It wasn't like, you know, these days we have amazing social workers and child life specialists and people who would reach out. You know, back then, there wasn't that. There wasn't the clinicians, the MFTs, the, you know, the folks to be available. David, at this time, are you like... At the time of your mother's passing, are you like 13, 14, something like 13. that? 13. Wow. And the one piece of advice I got was be strong. And be strong gets interpreted as don't have a lot of feelings. And I had a father who I tried a couple of times to talk to him about grief and my mother and really shut me down. I got a clear message. We're not discussing this. So... It was challenging, and so I I sort of, in my quest to find my own healing, this became a profession. And it's interesting, I can remember being in community college, and in community college, everyone was abuzz about there's two easy classes you want to take. Choose one of them. And the, the two classes were death and dying and human sexuality. And of course, everyone was trying to get into human sexuality. And I was like, oh, I'll take the death class. And of course, I learned and heard about Elizabeth Kubler-Ross in that class and her work on death and dying. Probably 17 years old, 18 years old, I was studying Kubler-Ross for myself, for my own healing. You know, under the guise of, oh, I'm taking the easy class, everyone. But I was really trying to find my own healing in that. So that's sort of how all that came about. So when we sometimes read about people and then we get to meet them, it's a interesting experience. So I believe when you met her, right, she was, it's after she suffered a major stroke and was near the end of her, her life. Talk, talk about that and the, your collaboration together. After I went into this field, and of course, Kubler-Ross was the person around death and dying, and she had written Death and Dying and the Stages of Dying. I was going to a conference in Egypt, and, you know, I was going to be wallpaper there, and she was the speaker, the keynote. It's this international conference on death and dying, and that's when she had her stroke. So I never got to meet her there, and, you know, we were all concerned about, gosh, how is she? And it's interesting, the folks afterwards who put the conference together, I said, gosh, how's Kubler-Ross? And they're like, we don't know. It's so awkward. We don't know how to call. We don't want to make the call. What do you say? You know, we wish we knew. Can you help? And I said, well, do you have her number? Whose number do you have? And they said, well, we have her son's number, but we don't want to be intrusive. And I said, do you want me to call? And they said, oh, please call and just see how she is. So I called her son and I said, you know, Here's who I am. I was supposed to be on the conference. Looking forward to meeting your mother. We just wanted to know how she is. And he goes, here's her number. She's recovering. Give her a call. So I called her up. And, you know, I'm calling my icon. So I call her up and I'm very nervous. And I said to her, you know, I told her who I was and I was supposed to be at the conference. And she was just lovely and told me about 
her stroke and how she was doing. And she asked me how Egypt was and what that was like and sorry she couldn't be there. And we had just a lovely conversation. And then at the end of the conversation, I said to her, someday, somehow, I hope our paths get to cross and I get to meet you in person. And she said to me, how's Tuesday? Now, wow. I realized, you know, I'm like, oh, maybe our paths will cross. I didn't want to be too much or be infringing on her or be disrespectful of her time. But I realized this is a woman who was used to making things happen. She was House Tuesday. You know, if she wanted to do something, she did it. I went to meet with her and it's interesting. First thing, I walk in and I go over to her sitting up in a chair. And, you know, clearly she's dealing with the aftermath of a stroke. And two things I'd tell you from that conversation, and this will give you a sense of Kubler-Ross. I said, first I said, hello, you know, I'm David. We talked, blah, blah, blah. And she goes, come here. And I went over and she goes, come closer. And I went, okay. And I sort of leaned in like wondering, does she have a hearing issue? I'm leaning in and she goes, let me smell you. And I went, oh, okay, gosh, I hope I haven't used cologne and all that that we think about. And as I lean in, she goes, I just want to smell to see if you're a phony baloney. Yeah, wow. You passed the test, obviously, the sniff test. You know, I, I, I think that was the beginning. But there was one more test then. And it's interesting. I've begun to appreciate it even more as I'm older. You know, midway somewhere in our meeting, I said to her, and I feel silly saying this now, I said, is there, is there anything, you know, I can do for you? I'm good at medical management if you need your pills sorted. I'm good at advanced directives. I, I, I sort of named, you know, the five things I can do for someone sick. And she said to me, yes, thank you. I do need help. I need my air conditioner filters changed. And I had that moment of change your air filters, but you know, I'm an, an advanced directives kind of guy. And I had to really stop and pause and go, I asked her if she needed help. She told me, am I here to help or not? Right. And so I said to her, uh, sure, where's your air filters? Oh, I don't have any. You're going to have to go to Home Depot and buy them. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, okay. And it's like, this is sort of not what I came for. But I really had to sit with, when we say I'm here to help, are we really here to help? And, you know, it wasn't something I could go, uh, that's not in my job description. And I got the air filters and I put them in. And, you know, I had to get a ladder. I mean, it wasn't like an easy job. There was like three or four of them and there's ladders involved and screwdrivers and all that. And, and a Home Depot far away because she lived way out in the desert. Years later, she told me that was a test. Yeah, that was a test to see if you were the real deal. <laughs> that was a test. So it gives you a sense of Kubler-Ross. And she had an honesty that you would admire or it would piss you off. Either one of those. Even people that are not clinicians or helping professionals have heard of the, the five stages. But there's a lot of misconceptions, both about the five stages of dying and about grief in general. Let's start our dialogue today before we talk about the sixth stage. Let's talk about the biggest misconceptions you've encountered in you know years of being a professional and expert on death and dying. So going back to Kubler-Ross, over the years, we ended up writing a book together, which was Life Lessons. That was our first book together. And there was a constant dialogue that I would say, Elizabeth, your stages are getting adapted for grief and not very well sometimes. And she would say, oh, when death and dying on the book, you know, I mentioned they can be used for grief and, you know, there's not just five stages. And I'll tell you, Elizabeth had a, a challenging relationship with the stages. You know, I want you to imagine 
that at the time she had probably written, I don't know, 20 books, given thousands of lectures. Can you imagine your work being reduced to five words? And it was frustrating. She wanted people to really read the book. And unfortunately, you know, the way the media works, they want something bite-sized and grabbable, and that became the five stages of dying. Without any context, right? Without any context or content, and people just heard those without reading the book and seeing, because Elizabeth talks about many more stages than five in On Death and Dying, and that they can be used. So we had this running dialogue about Elizabeth. You really should come out and speak about grief and the stages. And she sort of never gave that a lot of time and it was a frustrating thing and she didn't want to go back and talk about the stages anymore. And I'll tell you, I can remember clinicians coming in and I'd be sitting with her and the clinician would come in and go, Elizabeth, I have a case I want to talk to you about. And she'd go, okay. And they would, you know, give us 20 minutes of background on the case and we're on the edge of our seat waiting to hear like, what's the question? And then after the background, we heard about the family and what they're going through and who died or the illness or whatever. Then the question moment would come and the clinician would go, okay, Elizabeth, here's my question. What stage are they in? And Elizabeth would go, forget the stages, just meet them where they are. And that was a challenge that people just wanted to be so narrow on those stages for her. So lo and behold, the frustration level grew in her. And out of the blue, one day I get this call going, okay, let's do it. I'm like, do what? And she goes, let's write another book and clear up all this information about the stages. And I went, oh, okay. So we wrote the book on grief and grieving. And on page one, not buried in the book, but on page one, it said, the stages are not linear. There's no map for grief. There's no one model for grief. There's no right way to do grief. There's, you know, the, the stages are a observation. They're not research. They're just what she observed. And people will find this scaffolding helpful, but they don't prescribe, they describe. And so it's fascinating to me, even all these years later, like I'll be on my Facebook page and, you know, say something and someone will go, you and Kubler-Ross are just trying to, you know, neaten up our grief and make us follow your rules. And I'll often say, did you read page one? No, I'm not reading that book. I don't believe in that. And I'm like, well, just look it up on Amazon in the library. Page one, you'll see we agree. But I think people do have those myths and they got studied. Yale came out with a study that says it's not denial, it's disbelief. I thought of that as, okay, tomatoes, tomatoes, denial, disbelief. All right. So... You know, I, I think that both Kubler-Ross and I have tried over the years to help people release the misconceptions they have. And in the latest book I did, it was also a chance to go back and remind people of that because, you know, our book was in 2000. And literally, we turned in the book and Elizabeth died a week later. Yeah. Uh, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross's family donated all of Elizabeth Kubler-Ross's papers and research and work to Stanford University. And Stanford University now has a collection of all of Elizabeth Kubler-Ross's works and papers and, you know, all the background and everything. And so Stanford had this big event to honor Elizabeth Kubler-Ross and this new collection opening there. And it's interesting, they showed a clip of Elizabeth from the 60s. And do you know how people, like I mentioned, would say, you know, you're just trying to get people to follow our rules. Elizabeth was a rule breaker, I not a rule she, follower. She was an outlaw. And one of the days, uh, she was hospitalized at one point, and my kids were probably 10 and 11 years old. And 
I brought them to the hospital. They couldn't go up because they were too young and they were in the lobby. And I went up to see her and Elizabeth goes, where are the boys? And I said, they're in the lobby. And she goes, oh, no. And I said, what? And she goes, I'm so disappointed in you. Have I taught you nothing? Could you not sneak them up here? <laughs> and I, so that was Elizabeth. So at Stanford, they showed this clip of her. And in this clip, she's on a TV show and it's a talk show. And the talk show host says, Elizabeth, thank you for being here. We've got Elizabeth Kubler-Ross. She just wrote on Death and Dying. And to our audience out there, this is a conversation you may not be ready for, but we have to have this conversation. You know, said, if you're attempting to change a channel, don't. And they said, Dr. Ross, what do you want to say to our audience to tell them why they should listen? And she looked right in the camera and she goes, if you want to change the channel and you don't feel ready, it's okay. I'll see you another time. Bye-bye. And the host <laughs> was like, no, no. So... You know, that was Elizabeth. It sounds like she was that way till the very end. Yeah. Till the very end. Here I am. I've spent decades of doing this work. I've written with Elizabeth. I've written, you know, five books on the subject. And I believed most of my grief was behind me in my childhood. I mean, I imagine at some point when I turn 80 or 90, friends will die. But, you know, I'm the grief expert that my grief is behind me. And I'm helping others. That's, you know, a sort of an unconscious story I didn't realize I had until it was challenged. I get this call five years ago. My younger son, David, died unexpectedly. Mm. It was brutal and still is. And I was just... I canceled everything. I was expectedly devastated. And I had to really sit with this enormous pain. And I, I will tell you, I was shocked at the pain. And I wanted to write a note to every parent I had counseled saying, I'm sorry, I didn't understand how bad the pain was. And so I was really thrown into the epicenter of this pain. And I had to really sit with, well, what am I going to do? And I think I need to do what I've told everyone else to do for years. I went to grief counseling. I went to a grief group. And I'll tell you, to sit in a grief group, first of all, I tried everything I could to not go to a grief group. I was like, the traffic's too bad. There's no parking. I mean, I was trying to find any reason to get me out of it. I go to the grief group. And when I go to the grief group, I had to sit there. I took my contacts out. I put my glasses on. I had a cap on. I sat at a table five feet from this table that had my books on it. And I couldn't tell anyone that was me. I couldn't be the grief expert. I had to be the father who had to bury a child. So, so brutal. And as time went on, and I really, I still had that grief expert in my mind who would go, yep, there's your denial. You can't believe he's gone. Oh yeah, you're angry. Yep, there's your anger bargaining up. Yep, you're doing the what ifs. And I would sort of see myself, you know, and I wondered, oh, gosh, you know, it's like I'm, I'm here a living, breathing example of the stages and so many other things I talked about for years. And then I had this thought, oh, my gosh, I'm going to have to accept this. And I thought about how much Elizabeth and I, one of the other big myths about the stages was that Acceptance was like the end of your grief. That's such a myth. You know, first of all, there's no timeline on grief. There's no end point to grief. And, you know, to me, the goal is to eventually remember with more love than pain. But that's in our own way and in our own pace. But as I grappled with this idea of having to accept it someday, 
Acceptance wasn't enough. I wanted more. And I had studied Viktor Frankl's work on meaning. And I thought, how does meaning play into grief? And I began to talk to other parents about how they found meaning, how people who had had a spouse die found meaning, how people who had a parent, a sibling die found meaning. And I was really taken with it. And I began to write about it in my grief and to write about my own grief and about what I was learning from these other people who were dealing with so many of these things and how they were finding meaning after life's hardest tragedies. And then from there, I really began to write more and more about this, first for my own healing, and then it dawned on me, this, this is a book. People's reaction was, oh my gosh, that's the sixth stage. And I wrestled with, oh gosh, you know, that's a double-edged sword bringing up the stages again. But I thought, it's rare that I have another platform to revisit the stages and once again explain to everyone. They're not linear. There's, you know. So, and I was so honored that the Kubler-Ross family and foundation gave me permission to add a sixth stage to her iconic stages, and that's the stage of meaning. So that became the new book, the latest book, Finding Meaning, The Sixth Stage of Grief. And I'm just so honored. It touched people and became a bestseller. And well, it certainly t touched me. I lost my father when I was a teenager, and it's been almost 30 years. And I still, as you said, I still think about him every day and, and miss him. So it was personally meaningful. And client I have uh, done very good work with is she's a ER physician, was an ER physician, has seen many people die in front of her, and she had her own loss. And she was, we were going through stages, and she was saying, you know, it's hard to even get to acceptance without first making meaning of what you've gone through. So it, it, it does fit nicely. And I imagine this was your way and your your own extended grieving and therapy and honoring your son, your namesake. What did your other son and family think about this really powerful uh, tribute to David? First of all, the book is probably, I would say, 10% my story. So I don't want anyone to think that this is just a book for People who've had a child die, there's death of a spouse, there's so many wonderful stories, death of a parent, you know, meaningful ways. So it's, I think the other myth is that, you know, it's about finding the meaning and we're skipping the pain. And I would say most of the book is techniques to excavate the pain so you can find the meaning. It's, it's interesting as a writer, there's a few strange things that I think writers do. One, it's challenging to write a story about your real life because it involves other people. So at a certain point, I really had to sit the people down in my life and go, here's what I wrote. I just want you to know. I hope you're okay with it. This is your one chance to say something. And, you know, because it does involve other people's lives. And I try to keep the focus on my story. But here's the other thing that writers will do. I put things in the book, like the thing that kept me awake in the middle of the night and I went, oh, I can never say that in the book. The moment my ego says, I can never say that in the book, the writer in me goes, all right, we're locking that in. That's got to go in the book. book yeah. I got to say it. So I had to tell people in my life, there's things you're going to read in the book I've never said out loud and you don't know about. So that's just how writing goes sometimes. Like it's a secret between me and everyone who reads the book. Um, so that was one of the challenges. The other challenge about the book I like to remind people is I think people see the title Finding Meaning and think this is going to be about pouring pink paint over our grief. Or some people will go, oh, there's no meaning in horrible deaths. There's no meaning in a tragedy. There's no meaning in an addiction or a death by suicide or a parent dying or a sibling dying or a murder or a pandemic. There's no meaning in that. I'll go, you're right. Meaning is not in the horrible event. Meaning is in what we do afterwards. The meaning is in us. That's powerful. I think as somebody 
that trains clinicians, especially family therapists. I don't think we do a good enough job in the profession training young clinicians on how to sit in pain with clients and how to deal with grief. What do you think therapists can do to help clients on their search for meaning after a significant loss? Well, here's the thing. I am a fixer. I am a fixer. I mean, I say this as a joke, but it actually wasn't. I said to my older son once, and I hate to admit this, but I'll say it. I said to my older son, who was like 23 when I said this, I said, if you would let me make every decision for you for one month, I could give you an amazing life. (laughs) And he looked at me like, yeah, like that's ever going to happen. So it tells you the irony that I am a fixer by nature. If you have a problem, I want to give you three solutions. So it's fixer, it's control issues, it's all those things. And when you come to grief, there is no fixing because no one is broken. And grief is an organic experience. I tell people, you come from a long line of dead people. Every ancestor you've had has died. Something in your soul, your psyche, your body knows how to do this. We were built to take a number of hits this lifetime. So there's nothing to fix. And how many of us are trained with the concept of like, all right, what intervention are you doing? What what do you mean you're just going to sit there? No, no, you've got to give an intervention. You've got to help people. And then we get to grief when it is about witnessing. It is about sitting. It is about being that safe place. So I think for clinicians, we want to use our techniques and there will be a time for that, but many times it comes a little later. Yes, it's just creating the space to to be with people and to let them know that it's okay. It's interesting too when you deal with family systems, you know, there's each person's individual grief and then there's the collective grief of the whole family. But what are your thoughts on that? Kind of the the differences between individual and collective grief. Well, here's the big challenge. We have the myth, the notion that the people in our life who are our best friends, our family members, our brothers, our sisters, our spouse, we have this illusion that the people who are closest to us are going to be the best support in our grief. And it's a challenging wake-up call for a lot of people when, wait, my sister doesn't get it. She wants me to move on. She wants me to get over it. My spouse wants me to stop crying. And all of a sudden, the people we expect would be the absolute best people for us are actually not. So this is an area more than ever. We need the support of our clinicians and our MFTs and our support system outside sometimes of our family. When you were sitting in that group and trying to remain anonymous, the power of both having a one-on-one experience with the therapist, but also the, the power of being in a group, can you describe, even though you know you are an expert on death and dying, can you describe what being in that group was like for you as far as the connection you felt, the shared experience, so to speak? Well, I... First of all, I mean, I wanted to run the meeting. I didn't want to be a participant (laughs) in the meeting. You know, I love groups. I love running groups. I I didn't want to be a member of that group. I didn't want to be in that club. And uh, not that anyone does. And yet, what I had always believed proved true, that we find ourselves in each other's stories. And I think when one person begins to heal others begin to heal. So there's something about that group dynamic that I love. The other thing that was just so scary for me is I heard the stories of the people who were also there, that their child had died a month ago, six months ago, a year ago. I heard those stories. But then all of a sudden we got to people in the group who had been there 25 years 
And I went, oh my gosh, is this my future? Am I sitting in a support group for 25 years trying to deal with this? And then it dawned on me, those people weren't there for their healing. They were there for mine. They were the elders who were showing up to still help the newcomers. Pay it forward. forward. And they were paying it forward. They were the extraordinary people. So I, I love, like even in my groups now, I love those elders that stick around to help. I mean, you have to have a certain amount of comfort with vulnerability to share your story. And many times in therapy, depending on how and where you're trained, you know, you, you oh, don't self-disclose. Don't do that. I think uh, when I have done my most powerful work when uh, working with people that have, like myself, that lost a parent at an early age, teenagers or youngsters or other people, I think sharing that while every experience is different, it does humanize you. And all my clients, you know, when I've asked them that that has been a universally a, a good thing. I'm curious when you're doing your work and going across the country, what are your thoughts on therapists, on their own loss, kind of how they handle that and how they share or don't share that with the people they're working with? So here's my concepts on that. My concepts are one, it has to be shared in service of the client. And two, you need to think of three things you were able to name that helped you. And you also have to keep the focus on the client. And you also need to have done your own grief work. So here's what I mean by all that. If I say to someone, if a client says, no one knows what it's like to have a child die, or a spouse die, or a parent die, or a sibling die, or death by suicide or addiction. And I've had one of those, and I want to say, actually, I have had one of those. I need to, one, make sure I'm bringing it up in service of the client. Two, the moment I disclose that, I need to realize the client's going to say to me, how did you get through it? And that's not the moment for me to go, oh, well, I'm, I'm trying to figure it out. It's so painful. That's not the moment for me to be in it with my clients. So that's, I got to make sure I've done my grief work. And then the other thing is that when the client goes, so how did you get through it? That's where I have my three things ready. How did you get through it? I took it one day at a time. I got support. I went to groups. I had individual counseling and I talk about it and I name the three things, and then I've got to ping pong it right back onto the client. Which of those do you think might help you? How has this been for you? What are you, you know, when I got to go right back to them? I love it. It's great. And I think sometimes even though for MFTs, our primary audience, certainly it's in the scope of our practice to do grief work with individuals and couples and families. Sometimes it's out of the scope of our competence. So part of increasing your competence is doing your own grief work, wearing, knowing where your own blocks are, as you're saying. And we're going to talk about resources for clients and therapists in a second. But, you know. say about that, I know we're going to talk about one yeah, of my yeah, programs, but I have yeah. someone who's a professor at Columbia. And she's done research and is shocked by how little grief education counselors, therapists get. It's I just agree. shocking. It's shocking. There's a sense of, oh, this is part of life. You'll know how to do that. And people are really surprised that like, this is what people go, oh, there's actual tools and techniques. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, this isn't just, we're going to help someone cry today. We're going to be a safe place for them to cry. There's actually tools and techniques for all the different phases of their grief. And so, you know, when people ask, how long am I going to grieve? Or when people say, how long is my spouse going to grieve? My sister, my husband, my parent going to grieve? I say, well, how long is the person going to be dead? Because if they're going to be dead for a long time, you are going to grieve for a long time. Now, that doesn't mean that you will always grieve with pain, hopefully in time with love. Now, as we talk about that, I say, while there is no timeline, 
there are some markers. There are some markers that happen. And the markers that happen are, first of all, there's what we call anticipatory grief. It's the grief that happens before the person dies. It's the grief that happens before the person dies. And with that grief, I want them to know it's natural, it's normal, okay? Then the person dies and we go into what I call the acute phase of grief. That's when it's just happened. That's when it's just happened. Your whole life, it's all about that. Now, when it's just happened and it's all about that, how long that acute phase lasts is different for every single person on the planet. For some people, it's three days, it's one month. For other people, it's nine months, it's 11 months. But I can tell you how you know someone's coming out of the acute phase. They will often say things like, I'm just beginning to get my feet on the ground again. I'm just beginning to catch my breath. There's a sense of they're finding their footing again. And like I said, I think, you know, I often see it anywhere between six to nine months in there. But it can be anywhere. Then we enter what I call early grief. Now, here's the interesting thing about that. If I went downtown or the mall and said to anyone, when is early grief? People would go first week. People would go first month. Early grief is, for me, the average of many different people is often around two years. And people are shocked to hear, early grief is two years? And I'm like, yeah. Yeah, I know we have this idea that we're going to sort through our grief in six months or a year, but grief lasts much longer than we think. And then after that, we go into what I call mature grief. And it's interesting, you know, in my online groups, I have people in different places, the people who are over a year, under a year, because they're dealing with different issues. And people who are more mature in grief, they're in different places. And so it's for us to realize that, you know, this isn't something we can neatly wrap up and get done with. So those are the places I just are aware. You know, if anyone, like I'm doing a new podcast now, I have my groups online. Whenever anyone asks me a question, the absolute first question I ask back is, when did your loved one die? Because my answer is different if your loved one died a month ago, if your loved one died a year ago, and if your loved one died five years ago. I think we always have to understand that context. Let's talk about resources for clinicians, because a lot of people are going to listen to this today. They're going to be like, or they've read the book and they want to know where can I get more training? Because I did not get this in graduate school. This is an important part of a skill set for any systemic couple or family therapist. Where do I go? What resources do you offer? Both will talk for therapists and for grievers. For, let's start with people in grief. And by the way, therapists can be in grief. And in a lot of my online groups are therapists who are there to deal with their own grief. And they find it's a safe place to do it. So my online groups, obviously, the big place to find me is grief.com. Grief.com is where you find most of my resources. And I have a free Facebook group that people can find at facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash David Kessler. The other group I have is called Tender Hearts, and it's the online group that people who want more of an intense experience, a Zoom experience that they can either participate in or just watch. And that's not a small group. That's hundreds of people. But we all learn together. Uh, that's You can find that also on grief.com, but it's also at tenderhearts, plural hearts, support.com. Now, for anyone who's reading the book or read the book and wants a little more, there's a companion class that goes along with the book that they can find at sixstage.com, S-I-X-T-H-S-T-A-G-E, sixstage.com. Now, for professionals, 
I have a few resources. The first resource that I want to mention is about self-care. One of the things that used to drive me nuts is whenever I would talk about self-care, someone would talk about, well, a bubble bath. While a bubble bath is really wonderful, I want a little bit more to know how to take care of ourselves. So if anyone's interested, I have a free video at griefselfcare.com, griefselfcare.com. So that's great for professionals who are dealing with people in grief and you just want to know how to care for yourself. Now, for people who want to go further or realize they didn't get a lot of training, every year we have a once a year a grief certification program that's taught by me personally. It is a year-long program, but you get your certificate in three months. So it's three months of intensive work, and then we have the rest of the year as follow-up. And we have amazing people in there who teach along with me. We have other grief experts. We bring in so many different people. We teach about the logistics of grief. We have CEOs who come in. We have teachers from universities. We just had Rachel Hanfling come in, who's a producer with the Oprah Winfrey Show and Anderson Cooper. She wanted to talk to people about if you get called on to speak, how to do that well. So we really help people understand how to meet that client, how to understand the dying process, how to understand the grieving process, tools, techniques, dealing with all types of losses. It's such a powerful program. And that's going to be coming up again very soon, starting in June. Uh, there's a waiting list now that folks should get on. And, they can, and it's probably going to be open by the time this airs. But they can go to griefeducator.com. That's griefeducator.com. That's wonderful, David. And you said that is a year-long program. Is it both synchronous and asynchronous? You have a lecture from me every week. And the lecture is recorded. If you, it, people love watching it live. But if you can't watch it live, you will you know, have the recording. And then we have labs that people can choose from. And in the labs, we practice what we're learning on one another. And it's really powerful work. It's powerful, powerful work. Counselors, therapists, people who are already in the field of grief mm -hmm. are in there. We have first responders. We have physicians. We have nurses. We have police officers. We have fire you know, professionals. And just a wonderful mix. And here's the other thing. We have people in grief who are further along in their grief and want to learn to help assist in groups do different work. So it's interesting. It's a mixture. And I didn't know how it would work. But overall, when I talked to the professionals throughout the program and said, how do you feel about having people in grief with us who have been through this? And they were like, it's amazing. It makes the program so much more real and richer. Oh, that's wonderful. It sounds like a truly powerful experience. You know, we started out personally talking about your mother and Elizabeth. And personally, you know, you shared a powerful story of your son, your namesake, David. Uh, what do you think David would think about what you've been able to do in the last five years? I hope he'd be proud. One of the things that I hope with the book was David was in that, he was in that age when he was in kindergarten Everyone got trophies and got awards. And in kindergarten, he got voted the most likely to become a helper. And in his young life, he looked at everything from being a doctor, a nurse, a social worker, a paramedic. And he never got to become that helper. And my hope is that somehow in death, he gets to become the helper he never got to be in life. Mm. That's a beautiful sentiment. And again, I can't thank you enough for sharing your story with us here on the AMFT podcast and with uh, thousands and thousands of people that have hear, heard you speak and will read your book. And I really appreciate your time today. 
I'm just so honored because I, I want to remind people grief work is so important and grief gets passed down through generations. So I can't underestimate how powerful that work is. On my podcast, It's Interesting, which would be coming out around then if people want to check it out, called Healing with David Kessler. It's interesting, I just spoke to a man who as we delved into his grief from his childhood, we ended up connecting the dots that it wasn't why he was able to have successful relationships now. And I think grief has a lot of unseen tentacles. And I think the more we can help people with those moments that they are in grief and really be that listening present and have those tools and techniques ready to help them at their pace and their time. The folks who are hearing this, I just want you to know you are a gift to the generations, not just to your clients, but to their family, their friends and others. So from the bottom of my heart, thank you. And I'm grateful to your listeners and they have gotten me through things. David Kessler, thank you. Eli, back with you, bringing to close another thought-provoking installment of the AAMFT podcast. In addition to David's books, again, griefeducator.com, griefcertification.com, that 12-week training, The Pathway to Healing Grief, covers topics such as the foundation of grief, how to be with others in loss, releasing the burden of guilt, specific losses in the midst of life, losses at the beginning of life, and caring for yourself, wellness strategies. Every lesson designed to encourage post-traumatic growth to move beyond the pain and create a legacy of love. Check that out. Join the waiting list today. There's no wait, though, for us on the AMFT podcast. You can check us out every other Friday when we drop. You can also go to wherever you find your favorite podcast, whether that be Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, and catch four seasons worth of back installments where we bring you the latest and the greatest in the field of systemic therapy. Always free to drop me a line. I'm at Eli at NorthStarCounselingCenter.com. You can also find me at EliCaram.com. That's E-L-I-K-A-R-A-M.com. Follow this conversation on Twitter. The AMFT is at the AAMFT. I'm at Dr. Eli Live. We will rely on you, the listener, to inform what we cover on the show. Until next time, my friends, stay systemic.